Good evening, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm Carla Hayden, Chief Executive Officer of the Pratt Library System, and we are so pleased. Oh, thank you. And I was going to mention later that my mother is here, so thank you for that, too. Well, we are truly delighted and honored to welcome to the Central Library and back home to Baltimore, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Author and Pratt Lifetime Literary Achievement Award recipient Tom Wolfe said, you can't go home again, but that's never been the case for Speaker Pelosi, and I think tonight really shows it. We are privileged that she's taken time from a very busy schedule and time in Congress to discuss her wonderful new book, Know Your Power, A Message to America's Daughters. In an interview with WJZ's Richard Scheer last night, and he's here, she mentioned how her mother played an important and essential role in her life. Her book and her words about mothers and daughters definitely resonate with me and with everyone. We are very pleased to have tonight also members of the D'Alessandro family, led by, and he said to make sure I said this part, former president of the city council <laughs> and mayor Tommy D'Alessandro III, who won by a landslide. <laughs> Senator Paul Sarbanes and his lovely wife, Christine, who's on our board. We have board members, and we're very pleased to have a number of elected city and state officials. And if you could just stand up for a minute to Senator McFadden, and there are a number here. Please stand up. Now, we know you're waiting to hear from the House Speaker, but we provided a survey sheet for today's event. And if you have a question for Speaker Pelosi, if you could please write it on the back of your sheet. And then we'll have staff members collect them, and our moderator, Sheila Cass, will ask the questions for you. But now, the man who is like his sister, the pride of Baltimore, from a brick row house in the heart of Little Italy, who really epitomizes what politics and heart can be. Please welcome Mayor D'Alessandro. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm very happy and I'm proud to introduce my sister Nancy to you tonight. And I want to thank the Enoch Pratt Free Library for giving me this opportunity and the privilege to do so. Nancy was born in Baltimore, Maryland, in East Baltimore. and Little Italy. <laughs> and the third precinct of the Third Ward. <laughs> Nancy received her education in elementary school and in high school at the Institute of Notre Dame. That's about one mile north of where this library is located, at the intersection of Ashland Avenue and Asquith Street. She then graduated from Trinity College in Washington, and it was there that she met her husband, Paul Pelosi, from San Francisco, then a student at Georgetown. And I can attest to you from my own personal observation that the number one priority in Nancy and Paul's life is the well-being and the love for their family. They are the parents of five children, four girls and one boy. But they make up for that in the grandson category. The seven grandchildren, with one on the way, 
six boys and one girl. When Nancy first arrived in Washington in 1987, my father was still alive, and having served in the Congress for 10 years, he had an opportunity to have the privilege of the floor. So he was present when Nancy was sworn in as a congressperson. My father died two months later, but we all relished the idea that he lived to see Nancy become a congressperson. Now, when Nancy became a congressperson, she was assigned these committees, the Appropriations Committee, the Intelligence Committee, the Ethics Committee, all powerful assignments. And then she worked her way up through the faction of the Democratic Party and the caucus of the Democratic Party leadership position to eventually be elected by the Congress as a whole as Speaker of the House. Nancy's calling card is hard work. She works hard every day of her life. She has a very quick intellect, and she has street smarts. She has the ability, it's a talent, to be able to communicate with, with people. And she carries herself with style and with grace. Nancy is the 110th Speaker of the House. But in the 217 years of the founding of the Congress of the United States, Nancy is the first woman to ever become Speaker of the House. Ladies and gentlemen, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. The format for tonight is you're going to submit questions here, and Sheila Cast of radio station WYPR will be the host to interview, to interview Nancy. So let's give her a nice round of applause, Sheila Cast. And now, the Speaker of the House. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor D'Alessandro. I'm thrilled to be here. And I'm going to give you a chance, Speaker Pelosi, to do to him what he just did to you. Because, you know, your book, of course, traces the influence of quite a few people who were important in your life. But looking ahead to this evening here at the Pratt, I was struck when I turned the page from 149 to 150 to read, my brother Tommy has been the biggest influence on me politically. How so? Well, thank you very much for the question. I'm so honored that Sheila has agreed to uh, be part of this program this evening. She and her husband, Jim Rosapep, have served our country in so many different capacities, including as when Jim was ambassador to Romania and Sheila uh, engaged in public diplomacy there with him, <laughs> and of course her own uh, distinguished career. Uh, in journalism. So thank you, Sheila, oh, for being with us I'm this evening. I'm thrilled to be here. And it's a thrill to be in the Enoch Prattree Library. I spent a lot of time here when I was a little girl, both here and in one of the branches near the neighborhood. And uh, I do want to talk about that, but first I want to acknowledge Dr. Hayden and thank her for her hospitality and for great leadership of the library. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hayden. Thank you. And, and, uh, 
Christine Sarbanes, a member of the board and the other board members, and Christine's guest this evening, Senator Paul Sarbanes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank all of you, some of the members of the official family of Maryland who are here, and especially members of my own D'Alessandro family who are here. I'm so honored that you all came out tonight. As far as Tommy is concerned, he, I do want to talk more about the Enoch Pratt Free Library, but let me go to Tommy first. I said that uh, because uh, Tommy is, uh, you know, my, I was, we were both raised in a political family. Uh, my father, of course, uh, it was in his DNA. My mother married into it. Uh, but my brother Tommy has had a most lasting influence on me politically uh, because of the ideals that he has always fought to uphold, a great champion for civil rights in Baltimore when it was a difficult, uh, a difficult issue here, a uh, person who believes in the, go the gospel of as they say in San Francisco, preach the gospel, sometimes use words. Uh, Tommy's a devout daily communicant, and he practices, he acts upon his faith every day when he was in politics and now as an advisor to many of us. And he always had respect for other people. He would always say, you know, if something came up, he'd always say, don't take that personally. They have to do what they have to do. You have to do what you have to do. It's over. Just go on to the next thing. And that was really very, very uh, good advice. So, uh, uh, I, uh, I just really would not be where I am today were it not for the ongoing advice, guidance, and example of my brother, Tommy. Thank you. The first part of the, the, your book, Know Your Power, A Message to America's Daughters. The first part of this title, Know Your Power, who told you that? Uh, the title, Know Your Power, was told to me by a very distinguished woman. Her name is Lindy Boggs. She used to be a congresswoman. Paul knows her. Congresswoman, and Christine. A congresswoman from Louisiana. She went on to become the ambassador to the Vatican, representing the United States at the Vatican. And one day, well, it was before I was in Congress, but she came to San Francisco when we were planning the 1984 Democratic Convention there. And uh, I said to her, Lindy, I... Um, uh, you know, I have this, I'm the chair of the California Democratic Party now. We won the convention bid, so I'm chair of the host committee, and I'm also charge of the delegate selection. I think I have too many honors. Maybe I should share them with someone else. To which Lindy said, darling, no man would have ever had that thought. <laughs> and she said, know thy, she was a very religious person, know thy power and use it. And I thought of it all the time, and I used it actually in many speeches, especially when I was talking to women. Know your power. Know your power. Know it. Just know it. Feel it inside of you. Understand that the, your hopes, aspirations, and dreams have an energy that is important. Your experience is unique. It's you. Uh, know your power and, and unleash the power of women because the country needs it so desperately. So when it was time to do the book, it was Know Thy Power, we did Know Your Power, because it frankly was some of the best advice personally and politically uh, that I had received, and especially coming from uh, the great Congresswoman Ambassador Lindy Boggs. So that's where the title came from. And speaking of sharing things, I, I believe in sharing. So I do hope you all are going to be writing your questions. I'm not quite, quite sure what the system is for getting yeah. them up to me, but... Um, if I may talk about the Enoch Pratt Free Library while, while they get the questions up to you. I used to come here all the time as a little girl. A little girl and then as a teenager growing up when I was in Baltimore. And I just want to relay this one experience because it is not in the book. But I did, I did say in the book that one of my first official positions uh, in San Francisco was to become a library commissioner. I do talk about that in the book. And I trace my interest in that to my experiences at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. This is a great institution, you know. And I know that one of the mottos is, your journey begins here. And I feel very close to that motto of the library because part of my, my journey did begin here. And one incident in particular, when I, when I was a, a student in grade school, really, at the Institute of Notre Dame, yes, they used to have grade school in the olden days. <laughs> the... Um, one of the, I came in out of the cold, and I had on this hat, and the, one of the nuns said to me, what are you doing with that hat? You look like Mahatma Gandhi. 
I didn't know who Mahatma Gandhi was. I was a little girl. I, I had no idea who Mahatma Gandhi was, but I wouldn't let on that I didn't know. So I said, hmm? So as soon as school was over, I came right back to the United Pratfree Library, right main, main uh, building, and I came here and I asked if they had any books on Mahatma Gandhi, thinking it was like one word or something. And um, they had children's books. Imagine, this was in the 50s, the early 50s. They had children's books at that time on Mahatma Gandhi. And that was my introduction and, and the beginning for me of a uh, just a, a, a devotion and dedication to Gandhi, Gandhi's principles, nonviolence, and, and um, just the principles that he held. And then to learn a few years later to see Dr. Martin Luther King go to India and learn about nonviolence. Uh, and Gandhi, Gandhi, of course, has long been gone, even before this nun called me Gandhi. But, but um, to, to see Dr. King and Coretta Scott King go there and learn the principles of what they called satyagraha, nonviolence. And in Sanskrit, satyagraha means the same thing. It means nonviolence and it means truth insistence, insistence on the truth. And wasn't that what Dr. King was doing after all? insisting on the truth in a nonviolent way. So this became so much a part of me, and my journey on that began here at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. So I'm very grateful to the library for that wonderful gift. Yeah. By the way, I had members of the senior class of IND at the uh, Capitol this morning. Barbara Mikulski and I welcomed, Senator Mikulski and I welcomed them there, told them how proud we were of them. So this is sort of Baltimore Day for me. Let me just ask your help on these questions. If they're short and if they're legible, there's a much better chance that I'll be able to ask them. So I would, I would ask you to do that. You write in your book with great affection about your parents, of course. You also note that your father, Tommy D'Alessandro Jr., as well as the times that your parents were living in, held your mother back yeah. from her dreams. Tell us about that. Well, I don't know if it didn't hold her back from all of her dreams. Our family was her dream, and that was a great fulfillment for her. But my mother was uh, way ahead of her time. If she had been born now or even in my generation, Lord knows what she would have done. Uh, but she was uh, raised in a very genteel family and married very young to my father, who was in politics. So she had to go from the gentility of her family, to the gentleness of her family, to the rough and tumble of politics. At the same time, had seven children in, what, 11 years. And uh, she was an inventor. She was an entrepreneur. She used to say to me when I was a little girl, I know that they can do more phones, things with the telephone. I just know they can. <laughs> But anyway, that's what it was, and she would, she would try to make um, uh, purchases of land or do certain things that in those days you had to have your husband's signature, and my father was very, uh, again, typical of his time, uh, was just a different generation, uh, out of love and protectiveness and all the rest of that. Uh, let's uh, chalk it up to that. Uh, but she was a great lady and a wonderful inspiration to me. And as rough and tumble as politics was, when the door closed at the end of the day, she was mom. And I wonder, in, in terms of the title of your book, Know Your Power, when you look back on your mother, did she know her power? Oh, I think she did. My mother accomplished a great deal. She was really became a very astute politician in her own right, helped my father enormously. And, uh, you know, her legacy is her family. And so, what can I say? <laughs> anyway, that, uh, I have my own family now. Of course, I have four daughters and one son. And uh, I realized some of the restrictions that my parents placed on me uh, had some validity once I became a parent myself. <laughs> and uh, might interest you to know that... Um, I never really set out to run for Congress. I, I really I'd had politics in my youth. I wanted to be sort of normal and have a normal weekend, if you know what I mean. And, uh, and just one thing led to another. And as I say in the book, uh, it might interest some of you, I, I got a call one day from the mayor of San Francisco, Joseph Alioto. He served with my brother Tommy as mayors. They were mayors at the same time. He was my neighbor, so I knew him. 
and he calls her Nancy. This is Joe Elioto, very, he reminded me of my father a little bit in that respect. And he, he said, what are you doing, making a great big pot of pasta fagioli? I said, no, Mr. Mayor, I'm reading the newspaper. <laughs> and he said, well, okay, uh, good, whatever. I'm calling to ask you if you would like to be appointed to the Library Commission. Library Commission. I love the library. I was a volunteer in the library in San Francisco, again, part of my Enoch you know, Pratt Free Library orientation. And I said a girl thing. I said, Mr. Mayor, no, I love the library, but I'll just be a volunteer. I don't need a title. Just give that to somebody else. Oh, he said, absolutely not. One day you may want to run for office and you'll be in a city official, a commissioner that'll hold you in good stead. I said, Mr. Mayor, I will never run for public office. <laughs> so in any event, I became a library commissioner. I loved it. People, I had a vote. I had, to, I had a vote. So people want to know my opinion, not only on how I'd vote at the library, but on other subjects. And that really was the beginning of my official life. Again, the continuation of the journey from the library that started here. Now my kids, um, then of course, some years later, the opportunity to run for Congress came along. Out of the blue, it was shocking. Our congressperson passed away. She asked me if I would uh, promise her that I would run for office. She knew that her life was coming to an end, or I would run for the seat. No, I never wanted to. Yes, I did. So anyway, I said, well, let me check with my family. So I went to my husband, who was very supportive, Paul, always so supportive. Then I went to my youngest daughter, who was the only one home. Four were already in college. And Alexandra was going into senior year in high school. So with the deepest sincerity of a mom, I said, Alexandra, mommy has this opportunity to run for Congress. Sala is dying, and she wants me to run in her position. Um, but it would be better if it were one year from now when you're in college, but you aren't. So I just want to know how you feel about that. If you don't want me to run, I won't run. It's all the same to me. This is not an ambition I have. But I just wanted to know, I certainly would not run without your agreeing. With all the devotion of a mother thinking that I was indispensable in her life and all of that, to which she said, mother, get a life. <laughs> and so I did <laughs> a congressional life another life we have two people who have written and said Nancy please stand up so we can see you should we do this standing I can, we can do this standing oh I'll speak from standing I'll speak from standing you write and way back I think they're at the cathedral <laughs> Another place. Tommy and Margie, my sister-in-law, were married at the Cathedral of the Assumption, so that has a place in our lives as well. You write that the work, this is a quote, page 51, the work ethic and, frankly, the discipline that taking care of small children forces on you make any other job possible. Is that the key to knowing your power? <laughs> well, it is knowing your discipline, your diplomacy, your sense of organization, uh, inter anticipation of conflict and avoiding it and the rest. And I'm sure that any moms here know uh, that, uh, uh, that being a mom and organizing children and, and the rest is really, it's an executive position. It's an executive position. And that's why I want women to place a high value Sometimes women say to me, well, I was in the, the workforce and then I, I was home for, I was out of it for 12 years and then I'm coming back. I said, you weren't out of it. You were gaining strength. You were gaining power. You were understanding uh, uh, the future. And uh, count that as a giant plus. You weren't out of it at all. Count that as a giant plus in your resume of the strengths that you will bring to whatever you go for. And it certainly, I mean, moms can tell you, it forges you to have such strength because you have the most important responsibility in the world uh, raising those children of the next generation. You might be interested in this story, though. When I went to Congress, there weren't many women. There were, say, 20 women. It was 20 years ago. I don't think there were 20 women, but there were very few, maybe a dozen and a half or so. And so... Um, 
So, you know, well, let me mention there are 435 members of Congress, only about 20 women. So that's a small percentage. They rarely asked us what we thought of anything. In fact, never. In fact, never. <laughs> never. We were there, it was interesting, but we were insignificant in our numbers. Not in our power and our quality of service, mind you, but nonetheless. So um, we had this group that I was invited to join. They used to have dinner every Tuesday night. Paul, you know the group. And uh, we would go to dinner, and everybody would talk about what happened that day and what was happening the next day and the rest. And uh, they'd never turn around and say, what do you think? So you had to really muscle your way into the conversation. And there were three of us, Barbara Boxer, who was a House member at the time, now a senator, Barbara Kennelly, who was a congresswoman um, at the time as well, and, and, and I were the three women who would be, and there maybe be 15 of them or something. Never, never would say, what do you think? So one night, the subject, don't ask me how, the subject turned to childbirth. <laughs> to childbirth. And so um, we were sitting there, the three of us, again, elbowing each other. I have five. Barbara Canelli had four. Barbara Boxer had two children. So 11 children among the three of us, we thought, for surely they will turn to us and ask us about this. No, they were all engrossed in what it was like for them to have a child. <laughs> so they would go on about, oh, the night our baby came, we had a very hard labor. We did? We had a very hard labor. And we had, um, I had on the green gown and the cap and the mask, and I wanted to go in the room, and I got in there, and I thought, oh, my God, let me out of here. <laughs> and who didn't have his camera and had pictures if you want to see them? I, no, no, we don't want to see the pictures. Or the ones who um, were in there and fainted. We had all their stories about how it was for them to have a child. So we thought, for surely, they will turn to us and say, does this subject make you uncomfortable? Do you, or what do you think? Nothing. So another week later, same dinner, different, one other person was there, beautiful man, um, John Edwards, uh, he was the floor leader for the Equal Rights Amendment. He was a true feminist uh, member of Congress, a great constitute, right? Isn't he the best that there is? And he, as we're sitting at the table talking about something, and he says, Nancy, what do you think? Well, I almost was shocked. I said, oh, Don, wh why, why, why are you shocked? And so I told him the story of the previous week. And all the other men who were at the table, who had been the participants in that great discussion of a week earlier, said, that never happened. It could not possibly have happened. We would not have done that to you. See, they didn't even have a clue that they didn't have a clue. And, and, and as I say now, as Speaker of the House, uh, I always want to know what my colleagues are thinking on any subject, but I don't ask the men about childbirth. With five children, I think I have that base covered. <laughs> So I've got two follow-ups to this idea that child-rearing can prepare you for any job. One is, is the implication that managing the house is like managing toddlers? Oh. <laughs> Did you hear Sheila's question? She said, is it any inference to be drawn from this that, that uh, managing the, uh, a household with children is like, uh, and managing the Congress is like managing toddlers? No, 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 it's not like that at all. No, I, didn't, I don't want to imply that at all. All I'm just saying is, your people skills serve you well when you have to deal with 435 or 434 uh, other people. And again, your sense of organization, your use of time, the diplomacy, the discipline, the focus, that's really what I meant, not anything to do with their, their behavior. Okay, um, <laughs> a more serious... They're actually great. They really are actually great. They had the courage to elect the first woman speaker of the House. What can I say? <laughs> A more serious follow-up. Motherhood, holding a family together, is a big part of Sarah Palin's resume, the Republican nominee for vice president. And it's been controversial, whether to even talk about it, whether it's fair that that be part of how people look at her. What are your thoughts on Sarah Palin? Well, uh, is this a political evening? <laughs> uh, God bless her for her beautiful family, and I think family is off 
base in terms of any conversation in terms of politics. But I do um, think that as I encourage women to get in pol involved in politics, I want them to know that when they get into the fray, that people agree or disagree, and sometimes women even will compete with each other. In terms of Sarah Palin, it's wonderful that the Republicans have nominated a woman for Vice President of the United States. But I hasten to add, while I salute her for that and her personality and charisma and the rest, I totally disagree with her politically in terms of meeting the needs of America's children. It's one thing for us to have children. This is not really a question, but I want to read it to you because I think you'd like to know about it. Nancy, you spoke of your mother. When she was a patient at Mercy Hospital, she gave me a scapula medal. I have it with me. It hangs on my bed, a great lady. Oh, that's so sweet. Now, my mother was, my family, our family, Tommy mentioned, born in um, Little Italy and the neighborhood, devoutly Catholic, deeply patriotic, proud of our Italian-American heritage, and staunchly democratic. <laughs> that was the routine. That was the routine, but our faith has been a very important part of our family. We were taught that there was a spark of divinity in every person, that we are all God's children, and that in our dealings with people, uh, we had to uh, recognize that spark and to remember that we had it within ourselves as well. I mentioned that Tommy continues uh, to this day to be a daily communicant. When I, when I was um, nominated to be Speaker of the House, I was so busy. I was so busy because I was still not finished with my elections. I, although we had one, I had a few where we're still counting the votes and this and that. So this day came upon me when I wasn't really finished with the elections. It was one week after the election. So I went into the room that day, and my colleagues nominated me. The Democrat, the majority party, nominates a person to be Speaker of the House. So they nominated me to be Speaker of the House. And again, I was distracted by all this other. So when I went up to the um, podium to accept their nomination, the chair of our caucus, Rahm Emanuel, he, he leaned over and said to me, your parents would be so proud. And in that instant, it took me right back to Albemarle Street. And in that instant, I thought, no, that's not what my... My parents are proud of me. My parents did not raise me to be Speaker of the House. I told this to my colleagues. I said, Ram just said my parents would be so proud. Of course they would be. But they didn't raise me to be Speaker of the House. They raised us all to be holy. And that's what would be important to them. Well, Tommy's the holiest of us all. <laughs> and I am Speaker of the House. <laughs> this is a question from Mary Lynn Sitko. I'm asking this question as an IND student Institute of Notre Dame student and a Catholic from Baltimore. What was the main reason you got involved in politics and who or what do you owe your success to? Also, do you have any tips for me? I want to be involved in politics and I hope to follow in your and Senator Mikulski's footsteps. Wonderful. That is good news for all of us. I hope that... Uh, please tell me again the name. Mary Lynn, I hope that... Uh... There, you're speaking for many uh, women in this room when you express that wish to be involved. The, um, again, I was raised in politics, so I knew a lot about it just by osmosis, just by l watching uh, elections. There was, there was never, we were never not in a campaign. It would be the presidentials, and it would be the state, and it would be the city elections, or whatever it is. There wasn't a time when you would go into our home, there weren't buttons and placards and bumper stickers and all the rest right on the front table uh, to get out the vote for the Democrats. The, uh, the, the, so that was wonderful, and I loved it, but we, 
that was our lives. I mean, we grew up, that, those, that's what we did. My friend Sally German is here and her husband, Dennis, and they can attest to that. But we, um, uh, you know, I was trying to be a normal 50 teenager, but when I come home, it was always about politics. So, so I loved it, but I didn't want it to be my life. It was daddy's life and mommy's life and all the rest. I didn't want it to be my life. Then when I got, had children, I realized that, you know, again, our parents taught us that public service was a noble calling, and we all had a responsibility to help other people. But I thought there were other ways to help other people. Besides, I was very shy. It would not have occurred to me to stand up here and talk to all of you at that time. So, but when I had children, and, and I realized that, that, of course, we all want the best for our children, but the best for our children is not to have horrible disparities in our country where one in five children in America lives in poverty and where uh, there's so many things that we can do for our children personally, but we cannot keep the air they breathe clean, the water they drink, food safety, a world at peace in which they can thrive, a safe community. That required some public action. And so that's when I got involved as a volunteer to help other people. So that my track is one that worked for me in that I was involved on the issues because I felt a responsibility to the future. I had a, as they said, I was just burdened by the idea that so many children in our country were so left out of, in terms of opportunity and the rest. And, um, and so I volunteered, I supported other candidates, one thing led to another, library commission, one thing and that, and then uh, here I am. But the, I would encourage you to take some responsibility, no matter how small it is, if you can be relied upon to do it, you will be recognized, and then your circle of, uh, of when I say influence, I mean just uh, the recognition will grow, and then the opportunities will be there. And then you must be ready. I say in the book, you must be ready. Uh, for me, I, I'm a constant reader, coming back to the library, constant reader, read every everything in every newspaper every day when I sat in the park with my children, a magazine, you know, I just kept up on things. You can't be an expert on everything, that's for sure, but you can figure out what you do want to be an expert on and have some standing on that issue, whether it's the environment or equal rights or whatever it happens to be, world at peace, disarmament, whatever it is. Uh, and and it, that's what runs your engine. You don't get fueled by saying, I love politics, I just want to be in politics. What runs your engine, what drives your engine, is the commitment to an idea uh, of how our country can be better and what piece of that um, challenge you undertake yourself. Let me just tell you Maryland's story, because Maryland figured very prominently in my um, rise to power, and that is this... Um, so I became a library commissioner, and I was very good friends with the Speaker of the California Assembly, Leo McCarthy, who uh, was my friend, a very devout Catholic. We shared that um, uh, involvement in the Catholic Church in San Francisco. And then Jerry Brown became the governor of California. New young, he was in his middle 30s when he became governor, and one day he decided that he wanted to run for president of the United States. And... Uh, I called Leo, who was the chair of his campaign. I said, Leo, if he, if he wants to be run for president, nobody knows, who, not that many people know who he is, but he's going to have to run outside of California because by the time the California race comes around, it'll be over. California was last in the nation in June. But it so happens that the Secretary of State in Maryland had placed his name on the ballot in Maryland because he was a candidate elsewhere in the nation. It was up to him to take his name off the ballot. So I said, why doesn't he come to Maryland? I called Tommy, I called Ted Venetolis. Why doesn't he come to Maryland and we'll have a campaign for him there and he can succeed or not, but at least he can make the fight before the fight is over. Well, Jerry Brown agreed to do that, came to Maryland. Tommy and Ted launched his campaign. Others joined in. Every place he went in the state, he attracted, as is not true, Obama-like crowds. Thousands of people, which was new and young and fresh and, and great. And, um, and anyway, one thing and another, he won in Maryland. And when he won in Maryland, he went, we went back to California a couple days later, and uh, there was a huge turnout of people. They were shocked. How did he ever win in Maryland? 
how did he ever win in Maryland? And uh, Jerry Brown stood up there, and he wasn't used to giving compliments. So when he said this, it was, um, it was quite a remarkable thing. He stood up and he said, Nancy Pelosi was the architect of my Maryland campaign. And that just thrust me into whole... That was where I came out of the kitchen into the... <laughs> into the political world. I became chair of the California Democratic Party, went to Congress, da, 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 20 years later, Speaker of the House. But Maryland was a callback to Maryland, which really separated me from being a volunteer and a civic activist in San Francisco to becoming um, the Speaker of the House. I keep coming back to that, don't I? <laughs> Well, Madam Speaker, since you've been talking politics, I feel I can, I can feel I can ask these questions that came from the floor. Why don't you initiate the impeachment of President Bush? <laughs> I see the enthusiasm in this room for that. But there's only one place where there's more enthusiasm for the, for the Democrats to initiate the impeachment of George Bush, and that is in the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. They would like nothing better than for us to do that instead of do things that are good for the American people. His days in, uh, are in the White House are drawing to a close. His days are drawing to a close. Thank God. But uh, in the prospect for, in the, in the case to be made, in the prospect for success, and the opportunity cost of what we wanted to do and raise the minimum wage and pass the biggest expansion of health benefits for veterans in the 77-year history of the Veterans Administration, the biggest package uh, for uh, college affordability since the GI Bill in 1944, uh, stem cell research, so many issues, uh, a new an energy bill that took a historic energy bill. Some of these things we were able to do with bipartisan support. Uh, they are a foundation. We must do much more. But we had to get ourselves started down the path to lay the foundation for what I know, since you asked a political question, will be uh, the election of a Democratic president and the change that we need. Will, the foundation will be laid, and there will be no argument against that, the fact that this new president comes in, states his position, shows his vision, demonstrates his intellect, is successful with his strategy, unifies the American people, and nobody making any move to say, I disagree with your policy, therefore I'm going to move uh, to impeach you. But anyway, we have bright things on the horizon, and I know we have disagreed on the tactic of whether to impeach or not. Uh, but hope is here. Help is on the way. It won't be long now. And, uh, but nothing to be taken for granted. I feel like I've, I've stepped into the political arena a little too far for a library. So uh, unless you ask another question like that. The ABC poll tonight is, I think, eight or nine points. Obama. Obama. Well... We do have a question from someone here who wants to know more broadly. In your opinion, what does Obama have to do to win? Oh, are we allowed, uh, Dr. Hayden, to talk about something like this? From a, an academic standpoint, and as a, one who studied history and political science in college, I will <laughs> take on that question. Give me a couple. The, uh, I believe that as a Senator um, Paul, chime in any time. I believe that uh, Senator Obama is, is doing what he needs to do to win, which is to differentiate himself from the past. There are two paths. Our country has to choose one of them. One is to go into the future where we have civility and we have bipartisanship and we have uh, bringing the American people together, where we have all Americans participating in the economic well-being and the prosperity of America. We have all Americans having a right uh, to health care. We have all of America's children have opportunity in their education. Where we have job creation as the first order of business in our economy. As we rebuild America, as we innovate, as we eliminate our dependence on foreign oil, as we reverse global warming. And, and that is one path. The other path is the past of, path of the status quo or the past. 
And that is the choice the American people have, and he has to make that distinction very clearly. I believe that he is doing that. I think you will see further uh, di uh, distinction and therefore further differentiation in the polls. It's a very difficult race because there's some silent subjects uh, involved here which might affect what the polls say and what the voters do. Me, raised in Little Italy, I say in order for Barack Obama to win, and he knows this because we've had this conversation and he doesn't need me to tell him because he did it in the primary, you must own the ground. You must own the ground. You can have the best persuasion, and I think he does, the best commercials, the best mail program, the rest of it, if you don't own the ground, you've only had a conversation. You haven't had a political action. And so all over the country, people are organized to go get out the vote in their own states if they're a battleground, or to travel to other states to turn out the vote, or to call into those states. So that's it. It's, it's, a, it's one thing. It's, you must persuade. It's about message. It's about mobilization at the grassroots level. That mobilization is fueled by the message. That message doesn't win the election without the grassroots mobilization. So I know that, uh, that they have this uh, well as part of their plan. In fact, that's how they won the primaries against a spectacular, spectacular campaign uh, put on by Hillary Clinton. Now and for both of them have attracted millions more voters uh, to the process who will be there on, in November. Now for balance, I need to ask these two questions that came from folks here with us. Number one, how will you unite the Democratic Party if John McCain wins? And if the McCain-Palin ticket is elected, should we embrace the significance of the first female vice president despite our political affiliation? I don't think that that is required. <laughs> I mean... Now, let me be very clear. We all have an obligation to give a new president of the United States every opportunity for success and all of our cooperation. That is our responsibility to the American people. There's a reason that some of us are very interested in having many more women involved in politics, and that is because the issues of children of health, of seniors, and all the rest, have largely been our responsibility. It doesn't mean we are, can't take charge in our national security and the growth of our economy. It just means that we have some of these responsibilities and we want to see public policy support those. So let's, let me talk to you about a few of those issues and why I would say, you know, cooperation, wishing success, embrace, I'm not sure. But here's the thing, when one of the biggest issues that we worked on together, Democrats and Republicans, was something called the St uh, State Children's Health Insurance Program. Big votes, Democrats and Republicans in the House and in the Senate voted for this. It wasn't a partisan issue. Under the bill, 10 million children in America would be insured. 10 million children. If it were one million, that would be great. If it were five million, it would be spectacular. Ten million was something fabulous. Pass the House, pass the Senate, big bipartisan votes, Democrats and Republicans alike. The president vetoed the bill because he said we couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford to insure our children. Forty days in Iraq, 40 days in Iraq, 10 million children, for the price of 40 days in Iraq, 10 million children in America would be insured for one year. And the president said we couldn't afford it. He vetoed the bill, and John McCain said the president made the right call in vetoing the bill. So this isn't about Sarah Palin. This is about mothers across the country who want their children to have health insurance, and it's about John McCain's policy. So... So uh, I'm all about the children. You saw when I got sworn in, gaveled it down on behalf of all of America's children. But let's talk about our seniors. Medicare. It almost went down the drain this summer because the president vetoed 
uh, a bill, we overrode his veto. Democrats and Republicans voted, overrode his veto. And John McCain was there with President Bush, not with our seniors and people with disabilities and survivors who depend on a Medicare. And on Social Security, wants to privatize Social Security. So forgive my lack of excitement of embracing privatization of Social Security, no health insurance for our children, forget about Medicare, the list goes on and on. And in fact, he just recently, we've, uh, you'll see on TV a, a commercial about John McCain where he says what we should do with our, with our health industry, health um, care industry in our country is to deregulate it just the way the financial services industry was deregulated. So I don't share those values, but I wish a new president every success and offer him my fullest cooperation to find common ground uh, for the American people. Speaker Pelosi, it's been, it's been wonderful, wonderful having you here. I've got one more question for you. But before I ask it, I, I want to remind people, if you'd like to have um, Speaker Pelosi sign a book, she's going to be doing it behind us, at the desk behind here. And you should line up on this side to get in the line for it. Um, no photography, no drinks, just you and your book. <laughs> to line up to get Speaker Pelosi's sig signature. Um, I, would, I, need, I, I want to share this last question with you and see what you have to say. We are here tonight with eight girls from the Woodmore Elementary Girls Club. Their coach, Mrs. Joanne Otis, often has the girls learn and read about women who have made a difference in their lives. These girls range from third grade to fifth grade. Quote, we would like to know if you are considering a run for the presidency. Oh, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I think I have the best job uh, in the country, as a matter of fact. And one of the reasons I'm successful at it is that my uh, colleagues are convinced that I have, I'm not using my job for any future political ambition. Uh, so it serves me well to be content in my work. How can I, I just, it's such a remarkable position. President, Vice President, Speaker of the House, the third highest position in the land where you get to work with these wonderful people every day. But where are those little girls? Where are they? Uh, let's all give them applause for coming tonight. Thank you. To, to each of you, I say, you are the future. You are what we are in politics about, is to make sure you have every opportunity for the future. So thank you for coming. I'm honored by your presence, as I am by the presence of all of you here tonight. And thank you, Sheila, for moderating our, our evening. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you, Pelosi. Thank you so much. And I just want, I just want, Oh, I'm so impressed with all these people, but I want you to see all the D'Alessandros who are here tonight. Will you all stand up, all the D'Alessandro relatives and cousins and all the rest uh, who are here? <laughs> Again, the road, the journey began here for me, here in Baltimore, here in the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And so coming over tonight is really like taking a dinner break at home with family and friends from what's going on in Washington, D.C. Thank you for your wonderful welcome. Thank you for being here tonight. I'm honored by your presence. Thank you all. Thank you.